Um, yeah, an air raid siren went off just as we were supposed to t- start speaking. So people are starting to kind of get used to them. Dan McLaughlin has been reporting from Ukraine for the Irish Times for the past few months. And right now he's in the western city of Lviv. Nothing's landed in the city centre. There haven't been any strikes on the city centre or anywhere close, very close to the city. Russia has fired multiple missiles on an area near the western city of Lviv. But there was a big strike over the weekend, a big missile attack on a military base about 50 kilometres from here. That was heard in the city centre and it certainly rattled people's nerves a bit. Lviv is Ukraine's closest city to the Polish border and thousands of people are currently passing through it each day en route to safety in the European Union. Being in the city when the alarm's gone off, lots of people are still carrying on with what they're doing. Um, Some people are moving place to place. Some people are obviously trying to move on and and head to the Polish border or something. I also just saw when I was out um, a funeral for some of the soldiers that were killed at the weekend in that big missile strike. And that continued. There were people out in the square in front of the church. So, yeah, it's a strange combination of, of, of this being... Sure, it's a city in a country at war, but it is still fairly remote from from the worst of the military action and is still something of a safe haven for the people living here and and for all the people who are coming here to try and escape the, uh, the fighting further east. Three weeks into Putin's war in Ukraine, many are wondering how long the peace and stability in Lviv will last. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we ask... As the violence inflicted on Ukraine by Russian forces continues to intensify, is Putin's endgame any clearer? Dan, when we started talking a few weeks ago, you were in the east of the country, then you made your way to Kyiv, now you're in the west of the country. This uh, invasion's been going on for three weeks now, and Western intelligence officials, they initially predicted a victory for Russia in less than a week after the invasion, and yet... Three weeks on, the bombardments are continuing and the Ukrainians are building a military front to defend their land and their cities, which appears to be quite powerful. Where do you feel we're at after three weeks of this violence and bloodshed? Uh, You're absolutely right. I mean, the ability of the Ukrainians to fight back and withstand this invasion and to strike back at the Russians in different places and hold back this enormous force has definitely surprised the Russians, it's definitely surprised Ukraine's Western allies. I think it may have surprised some Ukrainians as well. But they have been fighting for eight years in the East in a much smaller conflict. So they do have a lot of experience. They had a month or more's warning. American intelligence was telling them repeatedly that something, an invasion is being prepared. And at the moment, I mean, according to American intelligence, again, reports that we're hearing from the States, the entirety of that huge invasion force that Russia built up around the borders that we heard so much about, all of that is now being employed by Russia to try and achieve their aims in the country. But it's until now, at least, it's just not happening in the major cities. I saw a mention yesterday that the 10 biggest cities in the country are still in government hands. Around Kyiv, we're hearing today that shelling is getting closer to the centre of Kyiv, but as far as we know, there, there is no street fighting in Kyiv itself, even though a couple of the suburbs of Kyiv, about 35 or so kilometres from the centre of the city, have been very badly damaged in fighting. Even Kharkiv, you know, the second city of Ukraine, where I was when this 
invasion began, Russia had an enormous force just a few dozen kilometers away from Kharkiv, and they still haven't managed to take the city. And they've ended up basically pulverizing the center of the city. We still don't know about civilian casualties. The Ukrainians say thousands have been killed, but we just don't know the details. It's a, it's a very, very impressive defensive effort from the Ukrainians. Dan, I also want to ask you about Mariupol, because we've been hearing a lot about that city in the news here. Now, the The Mariupol Council says more than 2,100 people have been killed since the Russian invasion. The city is running out of food and water. And we all saw the absolutely horrific reports about the bombing of the city's maternity hospital. What are you hearing about the situation there? As you say, it's been basically besieged now for two weeks. No food supplies, no water supplies, no power supplies getting in. All the basic services of the modern city have collapsed. People speaking from Mariupol are talking about bodies being on the streets, thousands and thousands of people basically being trapped in in the basements of their buildings for a long, long time now. As you mentioned there, civilian infrastructure being demolished by Russian shelling, the maternity hospital. Ukraine calls this strike, which hit a maternity hospital in Mariupol, a war crime. It buried patients underneath the rubble. So just a, a horrendous situation there. We're hearing a few messages from the major aid agencies. They're calling for, again, repeatedly, for a ceasefire to try and get supplies in there. But as of yesterday, for the first time since the siege began, uh, local officials said more than 160 cars, civilian cars, managed to get out of the city. And of last night, when I last got news from there, they were making their way to a, a Ukrainian-controlled city, which so far is safe. But at the same time, a humanitarian convoy, which was trying to get into the city, was still prevented from doing so by Russian shelling. So it's an extremely desperate situation. And one, I think, will only get clarity really on how how hideous the situation's been and what the death toll really is when it, it finally opens up one way or another and AJ aid agencies, journalists and, and people from outside can get in to try and document what's, what's gone on. But it's, it's definitely a, a, a horrific situation in Mariupol at the moment. A military nuclear superpower attacking a, a smaller neutral neighboring state. It's a contravention of the Charter of the UN of all international law. On Monday, Ireland's permanent representative to the United Nations, Geraldine Byrne Nason, said that UN ambassadors in New York believe there has to be a diplomatic solution to the situation in Ukraine because, quote, no one can win this war. We want to see the Russian Federation immediately uh, come to a ceasefire and withdraw their troops. This weekend gone by, a Russian airstrike hit a Ukrainian military training base just 25 kilometres from the border with Poland, killing 35 people and wounding more than 130 others. The attack brought the Russian invasion right to NATO's doorstep. Britain has called the attack a significant escalation, and White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned that any attack on NATO territory would trigger a full response from the alliance. The president has been clear repeatedly that the United States will work with our allies to defend every inch of NATO territory, and that means every inch. And if there is a military attack on NATO territory, Uh, it would cause the invocation of Article 5 and we would bring the full force of the NATO alliance to bear in responding to it. Dan, it really appears now that Putin is willing to push this war into European Union territory. What do you believe could be the tipping point for NATO military retaliation and proper concrete UN action in response to the situation? 
It's a, it's a tough question. It's a question that Ukrainians are asking themselves all the time. I mean, they're saying, you know, we're seeing major civilian centers and infrastructure being destroyed every day. We're even seeing fighting around nuclear power plants, which could obviously be a disaster for for Europe, not just for Ukraine. Um, at the moment, I think NATO has been very clear. They will not intervene until somehow a NATO state is is brought into this. It's certainly possible. You know, as you mentioned there, the attack on the Yavoriv base close to Lviv was very, very close to the Polish border. There is um, another airport which is extremely close to the Slovak border. I mean, just a handful of kilometers from the Slovak border. If that was to become a target, then Slovakia could easily be struck. It's also very tough for the Ukrainians to listen to, for example, the the US and other Western states warning that Russia could use chemical weapons or biological weapons in Ukraine. And yet that also isn't being stated as a clear red line when the West would intervene. So, you know, you can imagine how hard it is for, for people here. They're hearing from the NATO allies all the time. We support you in all, in all these different kinds of ways. But at the same time, NATO is sitting on the most powerful, modern, effective arsenal in the world that the world has ever seen. And yet it won't use it to help a partner, which supposedly it is fully behind and fully protecting. So they feel like, okay, if I'm on this side of the border, the Ukrainian side, effectively I'm disposable, dispensable. My life doesn't really mean that much to our NATO friends, in inverted commas. If I'm just on the other side, a few meters away in Poland, suddenly there's this huge reaction. Dan, how likely do you think a complete Russian victory in Ukraine is at this point. I mean, despite support through arms supplies from Western countries and the Russian campaign's logistical shortcomings, Russia is still a lot stronger than Ukraine. You know, it really depends what, what Russia calls victory. I mean, it came in with this, you know, these very strange claims that Ukraine needs to be denazified, whatever that means. You know, this is a pro-Western democracy and to be demilitarized. But we've also heard other things, for example, during the negotiations, kind of tentative peace talks that are taking place between the two sides, where Russia said, okay, we need Ukraine to recognize that Crimea is part of Russia. We need Ukraine to recognize the supposed independence of Donetsk and Lugansk regions in eastern Ukraine. And we need Ukraine to uh, commit to being militarily neutral, to not joining NATO. So that's another thing. I mean, on those areas, even Zelensky, the president, has said, we can discuss these things. There is room for a compromise here. Let's just sit down and do it. But if Russia considers victory to be all-out defeat of Ukraine, a full-on occupation of this country, an enormous country, the biggest country that is solely in Europe, more than 40 million people who are now absolutely, you know, almost 100%, I would say, against Russia and against the idea of collaboration, I think that is impossible. Even if Kyiv was taken, and that at the moment is very hard to see, because it's hugely well defended, it has massive Ukrainian defensive forces around it, there are tens of thousands of civilians who now have guns, pensioners, grandfathers and grandmothers are making Molotov cocktails to drop on Russians if they get into the city. They, no one is going to welcome them, and it is going to be, even if they try to take it, it is going to be a nightmare to hold. And even if they reach Ukraine, even if they reach Kyiv, sorry, they're only about halfway across the country. A fully occupied, fully controlled Ukraine, I just do not think is realistic. What about these diplomatic negotiations between the two countries? Do you think there's any chance that they could end the bloodshed? 
Yeah, I, I think Ukraine is definitely open to it. And, and Zelensky and his negotiators are saying that every day. Let's just sit down and find something that we can discuss. But we're not going to hand over the country. We're not going to capitulate. We're not going to give up on our particular red lines. We want the Russian forces out. We want to remain an independent state. Other things we can discuss, but let's stop the war. So it really takes Russia to to accept that it is not going to crush this country now and to to sort of redraw the lines on this military operation, as they call it, and change the change their own expectations. One thing I would be concerned about is that Russia is just kind of spinning this out, playing for time, sitting at the negotiation table so it can claim to be interested in diplomacy, while what it really wants to do is crush Ukraine militarily. And one aspect of that that concerns me, one aspect of the negotiations, is that actually, you know, when you look at the people that Russia sent to the negotiations, they're really not very influential people. There's a former culture minister, there's a deputy in the Duma, not really people who make any decisions. I think it's really clear by this point that only one man is going to decide what Putin's willing to accept, whether he's getting a real accurate picture of what's going on in Ukraine now. And we don't even know his state of mind. So yeah, all these questions. Unfortunately, we're really in the dark about what Putin's willing to do and, and what, you, what Russia might be willing to do to compromise in this situation. Dan, last year, before all this kicked off, you spent many months traveling around Russia, all parts of that massive country speaking to Russians. We've seen a lot of protests over the last few weeks. We have seen this groundswell movement and huge numbers of arrests. That's what we're hearing anyway in the West. What possibility is there that Putin could be toppled either by this groundswell of protest and a kind of a people's revolution or by Kremlin elites or the Russian military who just feel he's lost it. We need to step in and take control. We've seen two or three very wealthy Russians come out and say, without directly saying Putin's lost it and, and we have to get rid of him, saying that this, is, this war is a mistake and it should end. Which even in itself is something, is significant, I think, in a country where all criticism of Putin is now basically outlawed. Thousands of people, as you mentioned, have been arrested on the streets. So, you know, we might be at the beginning of a very long and costly war, costly in all ways. And already, with, I think, we're seeing the potential for cracks in the elite. Already, it looks like Putin is, is not taking everyone with him. People in the government, like the central bank governor, like the prime minister, who have tried to build a stable and successful economy over the last 20 years, and it's been absolutely trashed in the space of a fortnight. So what are they saying to each other? I mean, I spoke to, I'm going to write a story about this in the next couple of days, the only Russian deputy who voted against the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, a guy called Ilya Panamaryov. And he left and he moved to Ukraine, as lots of Russian dissidents did in recent years. He's now somewhere in Ky outside Kiev. He's got a gun. He's guarded. He's protecting himself. But he's got Ukrainian citizenship and he says he's staying in the country. And he said he thought... A member of the, not, not the very closest circle to Putin, but someone in the elite, in the broader circle of the elite, who has some access to Putin, could definitely try to take him out one way or another. Sideline him somehow, an, assassinate, an assassination attempt, something like that. I mean, Ponomaryov even went as far as to say he doesn't think Putin's going to live past the end of this year. I mean, he's a guy who, 
he was a deputy for many years. He's, he, he was very well connected in the Russian elite. And he thinks it's a possibility. It's one of the possibilities. And so many powerful people are losing so much so fast in Russia that it has to be something that we take into consideration. You know, we're projecting way into the future and this is all speculation. But something else he said and other people have said that if this does, does lead to the collapse of this authoritarian regime, what does that mean for Russia? I mean, it could have massive implications for Russia as a state and its stability longer term. And he was even saying, and other people have said to me that a war that Russia started to destroy Ukraine could end up ultimately posing a threat to the future of the Russian state itself. Dan, thanks as always for your time and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Coming up, Irish Times correspondent Lara Marlowe speaks with refugees on the move through Ukraine's western city of Lviv. Over the past three weeks, the city of Lviv, a magnificent UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is usually home to around 700,000 people, has become the crucial transit zone for hundreds of thousands fleeing the war in Ukraine. Lara Marlowe usually reports for the Irish Times from her home in Paris, but she travelled to Western Ukraine earlier this month to report on the refugee crisis unfolding across Central Europe. Lara, you've been speaking to some of the people and the, the families arriving into Lviv train station in recent days. What is the atmosphere like there? Uh, it's overwhelming. Uh, Lviv train station, Thursday afternoon, bitterly cold. There are men uh, stoking a fire in an old barrel. The train station... Uh, is this sort of big pile of, uh, I don't know what kind of neo-Austro-Hungarian architecture. And it is just teeming with people coming in, going out. There's a big esplanade in front of the train station. Uh, in front of the train station, there are booths giving out tea and sandwiches and people milling around everywhere. There's a man playing the piano uh, with mittens on against the there were about a dozen tents pitched in front of the station uh, with volunteers trying to help the, the newly arrived refugees. And, and most important of all, of course, were thousands of refugees who had either just arrived from further east in the country or who were trying to, to continue their journeys uh, to Poland or Slovakia or Hungary or Romania, anywhere where they could feel safe. And these people, some of them were quite purposeful. They knew what they were doing. They were trying to get onto Platform 5, which uh, is where the trains go to Poland. Uh, some of them were just lost. And you could see on their faces that they were exhausted. They were tired. They were cold. They were hungry. And they were in despair. You spoke to a woman in the train station, Maria. My name is Masha. Maria. Maria, uh, what's your family name? Family name, you, you mean surname? Yes. Maria Yatsenko. She was there with her five children, her father and her grandmother. What was she like? She was one of the most impressive people I've met since the war started. She was, she was a beautiful young woman. Initially, I, I couldn't believe that the baby she was holding was actually hers because she looked so young. 
and when I said is that your baby is this this is my baby and this is my baby and this also and this and this I have five kids five kids you look so young thanks you're beautiful and then I asked her father was standing next to her he was quite a handsome man I said um is this your husband no it's my father your father and I looked around and there was an old woman um, with her back against the wall, stooped over. I couldn't even see her face uh, with a pink blanket over her shoulders. And she was on crutches. And that was Maria's grandmother. Her name is Maya. Maya. Yes. Yes. And what, you're trying to get to Ostrand? Uh, We're trying to get to Poland. Uh-huh. So you went to the by train. Right. So the, the family unit that was fleeing from Dnipro in central Ukraine was um, the, the, the grandmother, her son, her granddaughter, Maria, who, who spoke English very well. She'd learned it at school in Dnipro. And her five children, ranging from a, a, a baby who was less than a year old uh, to a 12-year-old girl, who's, well, the girl who's going to celebrate her 12th birthday this coming week. And... Lara, what did Maria tell you about her decision to leave Dnipro? She said the war had not yet come to Dnipro. Not yet, and I hope it won't be like you say. So why did you leave? Because there's no fighting yet? Uh, because I don't want to wait for the fight in my city. And as a matter of fact, uh, 24 hours after I met her, I learned that the Russians are bombing Dnipro so she made the right decision. They actually left a week ago, and it took them a whole week to travel from Dnipro to Lviv, a journey that in, in normal times would have taken a day or two. Why did it take so long? Did you stop on the way? Because there is traffic, and uh, there are so many cars and buses. And like so many Ukrainian women that we're hearing about, Maria had to leave her husband behind. And she spoke to you about this. What did she say? Well, first of all, I asked her his name and she said he's called Yevgeny. And well, your husband is stayed in, in, Dnipro? in Dnipro? Is he fighting? No, he's not fighting, but he's working for our army and for our, uh, for our victory. It must have been very hard to leave him. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, and she, that was when she teared up for the first time. She said she was very, very proud of the army and that she knew that the Ukrainian army would be victorious against the Russians. I hope that we will... I hope we will come home someday. I hope so too. I hope so too. Lara, hundreds of thousands of people have been pouring into Lviv since the war began three weeks ago. How is that city coping with this huge influx of people? I mean, they seem to have responded incredibly well, but what is the morale like in the city? I'd be lying if I said people were happy, uh, but normal life is, is going on pretty much. I mean, the schools have all closed because they're being used to house refugees. Everything closes by eight in the evening because the curfew starts at 10. I guess the big question in everyone's mind is will the war come here? And I think that's also on the minds of the refugees and they're thinking, should we move on quickly before it does come here? But 
the trains to Poland are notoriously packed, they're crowded. At one point, my interpreter and I were walking up the queue in the tunnel uh, under the, the platforms, and uh, there was almost a riot because the women and children who'd been waiting and waiting thought we were trying to jump the queue to go to Poland. And we weren't, of course, we just wanted to talk to people. But one of the volunteers sort of pushed us up the stairs up to onto a platform, not the platform for Poland, just so we wouldn't be attacked in some way for, for, for alleged uh, queue barging. So the, yeah, the mood is, is tense. Everyone, I mean, I think the mood in all of Europe and perhaps in the whole world is is shock and depression over this invasion. Um, so it's not specific to Lviv, but it's probably more intense here than, than say, in Ireland. Um, I don't think it's as intense as it, the worst place to be, obviously, is Mariupol right now. Um, and, uh, and But even that, you know, I, I mentioned in an article at the beginning of last week, a fellow who'd driven from Donetsk and the locals were suspicious and removed the air from the tires of his minivan. And today I, I knew the story because I, I, have, I know a friend of his. Today I learned that his brother and three of his brother's friends were killed while taking people to a shelter in Mariupol. So it's starting, it's getting to the point now where people know people who are being killed and it is definitely affecting everyone's morale. Lara, thanks so much and take care of yourself. Thank you. That's all for today. And my thanks as always to our correspondents, Dan McLaughlin and Lara Marlowe for joining us again on the podcast. You can read their reports from Ukraine and more coverage from our other foreign correspondents at irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.